You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So, um, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our keynote address in this conference of Demons, Good and Bad in Trinity College, Dublin. We have Professor Julian Ruder, who is Emeritus Professor of History from the University of Edinburgh, is author of The European Witch Hunt, which appeared in 2016, and his recent edited books include Demonology and Witch Hunting in Early Modern Europe, The Supernatural in Early Modern Scotland, and Scottish Witches and Witch Hunters. He is the director of the online survey of Scottish Witchcraft. And today, Professor Gooder will offer us his advice on how to rule a magical world, Europe, 1,400 to 1,700. Thank you, Soha. Thank you to both the organisers, Soha and Jonathan, for uh, inviting me to address you, and more importantly, for bringing all of us together in this conference. I've already learned so much from the papers we've already heard, and I'm very much looking forward to tomorrow as well. So, yeah, how to rule a magical world. How could you rule? A magical world where the world is pervaded by supernatural powers. Now, you will have to make sure that people don't use these supernatural powers in antisocial ways. And um, in particular, you'd have to make sure that they didn't use illicit supernatural powers against your own authority. But your main strategy for ruling successfully in a magical world is to get the, all the best and the strongest supernatural powers onto your side. So, this is what the rulers of early modern Europe did. And they ruled as they proclaimed and believed by the grace of God. This is something that you'll find in you know, many kings' statements that they have been, in a sense, personally chosen their dynasty, but they themselves have been personally chosen, specially sanctioned, by God. This, is, this phrase, by the grace of God, really means something. And so they are not just secular rulers, they are godly themselves. They rule alongside churchmen who validate their authority, proclaim their special divine status, and preach obedience to the rulers. Romans 13 in the New Testament, very important in the early modern world. So even the so-called secular authorities relied on supernatural powers. And so we can think of the world as a contest between legitimate and illegitimate supernatural powers, I suppose. Uh, here's another coin. I, I particularly like this one because it's got the DG de Gracia, but it also shows the ruler's direct connection to heaven. What you're seeing on the right-hand side here is the royal lion with a scepter actually downloading um, from a cloud supernatural power. That cloud is actually heaven, and you can see the um, Hebrew name for God in that cloud. So James VI of Scotland has got the unique authorization to do this because he is a divinely appointed ruler. The contest between legitimate and illegitimate supernatural power um, appears quite vividly in this picture, and this is the run-in between the magician Hermogenes and the apostle St. James. There's a lot going on in this slide, um, mainly to do with demons, all sorts of demons doing all sorts of things in this picture. But the story, basically, is that the 
magician Hermogenes had a lot of demons on his side, but um, when he had a run-in with St. James, here they are, James uh, commanded the demons to turn against Hermogenes and destroy him. So legitimate supernatural power overcomes illegitimate supernatural power. That is what the authorities would like um, to believe themselves, but this is how um, you know, power uh, should be exercised in the early modern world. So far I've used the terms magic and supernatural largely interchangeably, and you know, that's, uh, I think, how people would have thought about it. And the precise terminology varies and perhaps isn't crucial, but um, maybe I could make a few conceptual distinctions. When we think of magic in the modern world, we often think of it through a scientific paradigm, and the distinction between magic and whatever else is that magic is not scientific, and um, in a scientific paradigm, magic is something that is ineffective. You know, it, it's, it's not scientific, it doesn't really work. Um, and magic and religion can seem similar in this uh, uh, paradigm. Religion is also not scientific. Uh, and there's something in this, I'm, I'm not going to step completely out of the modern world in order to analyse the pre-modern world, but it's more important, I think, to look at how people within the pre-modern world conceptualise themse themselves. And they do not have an idea, at least not towards the end of our period, uh, and, um, they do not have an idea of religion or magic as ineffective. They think it really works. Um, and so if we get closer to um, the way they think about it, Magic and religion are similar in some ways, but that almost makes it more imperative to distinguish between them. So one of the distinctions that they will draw is between natural physical processes, things that we see in the everyday world, and something that we don't see in the everyday world, like people flying, whatever. Uh, and just about anyone you ask in the early modern world will be able to agree that a distinction between natural and non-natural, whether they actually use the rather technical term supernatural, um, you know, probably wouldn't, but you know, they, they have some idea of natural laws and everyday processes, this is the ordinary world and this is something beyond that and special. So if it's beyond that and special, where does it come from? Is it legitimate or illegitimate? Is it orthodox and religious? And if it's not, could it be magical? Magic is a word that most people use pejoratively and in a relational way. There are a few people, as we'll see, who do um, call themselves magicians, but it's mostly a label that um, is put uh, onto people. Within the supernatural, um, there is a, a more technical use of that phrase within Christian theology. So, um, Christian theology not everybody will understand the details of, but those who do, that includes the rulers, um, should be able to make some version of this distinction. They are thinking of supernatural powers, or good and bad, in terms of God and the devil. And in a conference about demons, it's worth remembering that the Christian devil is a demon, and he is the boss of all the demons. But, you know, um, ontologically he is simply a demon. And 
We have good and bad, but they are not equivalent. They're not the same kind of thing as each other because God has actually created the devil. God is above the devil. And God alone has supernatural powers. This is the technical usage of the word supernatural, that it pertains to God alone. And um, God, because he has created the world, is in control of the laws that the world runs by. And he can override those laws if he wants and um, work miracles which completely go against the, uh, the rules of the natural world. And the devil, because he is within the natural world, is a natural being, is a created being, is unable to work miracles. He is unable to um, you know, break the laws of the physical world as it's understood. And the theologians who think about this will sometimes use the term preternatural to describe what the devil will do and will call the devil's actions wonders rather than miracles. What's the distinction between a miracle and a wonder? Well, to us, it's very hard to tell. Um, and that's partly because of our nature. We find it difficult. I mean, you know, God will know. But we find it difficult because one of the things that the devil can do is to deceive the human senses. So one of the um, sort of case studies that a number of demonologists write about is the transformation of a human into an animal. You get apparent stories about this in the Bible, how do you interpret the idea that Nebuchadnezzar got turned into an ox or whatever. Um, can the devil really turn a human into an animal? And some thinkers say the devil really can do that. Most of them say he can't, but he can create the appearance of it, which is pretty much the same thing. He can make the person themselves perceive that they are, let's say, a wolf. If we're talking about werewolves. Um, so the person themselves thinks that they're a wolf, they behave like a wolf, etc. And everybody else also sees a wolf. And so, um, you know, the difference between miracles and wonders is, is very hard to perceive. Um, but if you want to rule, you have got to get on top of this somehow. Some of the words that will actually be used um, in order to um, sort of draw these distinctions. Um, for, first of all, you know, legitimate religious practices, um, we can sort of set these on one side, but if people are wanting to categorize um, practices as magical or illegitimate in some way, supernatural practices illegitimate in some way. The words that they'll use, uh, they may use the word magic, which is largely pejorative. Um, they may well talk about superstition. And superstition is a Christian category that denotes some kind of false or unnecessary belief or practice. You know, God has told us what we should do, how we should behave and worship. You know, we should do this, 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 and this. If you do something extra that God hasn't commanded or God doesn't particularly want, um, you know, that's unnecessary and wrong and superstitious. And you should be sort of, it should be pointed out to you that you should get back within the um, accepted uh, um, parameters. If you go directly against um, the uh, accepted rules of, uh, of Christian worship and behavior um, and practice Christianity in an overtly wrong way, that's heresy, that's in directly incorrect Christian belief and practice, 
Heresy can be very serious. Idolatry is another useful term, and it's a kind of subset of heresy. Idolatry means worshipping things that are not God or worshipping false gods, and there's a lot about that in the Old Testament. Um, and then there's witchcraft. Um, um, I'll come back to witchcraft later. Witchcraft has a sort of dual, um, uh, dual function in, in, in this terminology. It may mean sort of bad or harmful magical practices in the everyday world, doing stuff that actually harms people. Or it may mean um, dealing with demons. Uh, it may mean both, but those are two, um, two separate things. The devil and demons are definitely bad. And the educated elite, the demonologists, the rulers, you know, definitely think that the devil and demons are bad. But the common folk also will agree um, that the devil or demons are bad. So there, there, there is no suggestion of good demons that I'm aware of in early modern Europe. There might be an idea of how you might deal with demons, but um, you know, their, their moral character is pretty much um, universally agreed. Uh, as bad, and you know, everyone thinks that they are harmful and they need to be avoided. And exactly how that works um, is um, something that people need to understand. One of the things that people needed to understand is if God is greater than the devil, has created the devil, you know, how is it that the devil can do anything? Surely God can just tell him not to. Uh, and um, then we could all be much happier. Uh, and the theological answer to that is that, yeah, God could do that, uh, and, but God chooses not to and permits the devil or demons to be active in the world. Um, and it's a Christian theological axiom that God is not the author of evil and not the author of sin. God does not create or cause bad things to happen, he permits bad things to happen, and it's the devil and the demons that actually do the bad things. Um, why does God do that? Because humans are also sinful, humans create, commit sin, and God is angry when humans commit sin, and when God is angry that humans commit sin, he allows the devil to afflict humans, tempt humans, um, in, in various ways. There's a second way in which God can permit um, the devil or demons to be active, and that's if he wants to test someone's faith. Uh, so this isn't as a punishment directly for sin, but um, simply testing people's faith is a, is a good idea from time to time, and the Old Testament story of Job is the one that's always mentioned here. But anyway, there are theological explanations for why bad stuff happens and why it is that demons do it. It's divine permission. So divine permission is an, um, absolutely um, in with the bricks of how people understood this. So demons, all bad, but God allows bad stuff to happen. If you're a ruler, um, you need to um, distinguish um, between possibly competing claims to good stuff. Uh, because various people will have uh, godly experiences or supernatural experiences, visionary experiences, 
And you know, they will say that they've met an angel or they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit to come to heaven or whatever. I said, Lula, you know, if you haven't been to heaven yourself and you know you're trying to work out uh, you know, how do you deal with someone who says they've been to heaven or says that they've met an angel? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, if they're right, then you should probably treat them with a lot of respect. And they could be very useful, particularly if what they are saying about what the angel told them is a godly message and is a message that you want um, to be promoted. So th this is all part of getting the best supernatural powers onto your side. You know, if there's a new supernatural power, somebody who's got a new vision, um, you, know, you know, you want that for yourself. Uh, so, but there has to be a discernment as to whether some kind of vision, visionary power is acceptable or not. So just briefly to give you a couple of examples of uh, acceptable and unacceptable visionaries, um, St. Teresa of Avila, um, she became a saint, yeah, she got accepted. Um, she had divine visions, that's the Holy Spirit, that word, uh, and she used her revelations to communicate messages about how people should behave, and in particular, how Spanish converts should be reformed. And the authorities, you know, checked this out and thought, yep, yeah, yeah, she's working for us. Uh, and she was allowed to do it, encouraged to do it, and, you know, stayed within the boundaries of godly orthodoxy and was, was welcomed. Somebody else who also had angelic visions and actually did claim to have visited heaven is in Upper Austria, Martin Lindbergh. Um, but he, his message was one of peasant revolt. You know, that the, the angels were on the side of the peasants. And this is not what the rulers wanted to hear. Perhaps the peasants did. In fact, you know, history records that the peasants did because they did rise in revolt. But the revolt was crushed and Daimbao was executed and this slide shows his execution. Um, you know, the nature of St. Teresa's experience and the nature of Limbao's experience, and it's a bit hard hundreds of years later to judge, but they seem to have had you know, perhaps similar experiences, similar messages, but you know, the political context is rather different, and the authorities had to decide um, that Lenbauer's visions were actually not acceptable, and they get re-labeled as really being demonic. And so, you know, successful rule enables you to detect that a peasant revolt is actually demonic. Um, stuff that you need to do uh, in, in order to um, rule successfully, um, you know, performing your own religious rituals. Here is an example of religious rituals that sort of penetrate deeply into local society and that the peasants themselves will actually welcome or want, the, the regation time procession. Um, this happens in late spring when the crops are growing and farmers are worried when crops are growing. You know, those plants are very fragile, what could happen to them? And one of the helpful services that the church can provide is um, banishing demons from the crops. And so, um, you know, the priest and the congregation will go round the boundaries of the parish, um, display the cross, 
and banish demons from the parish. Uh, whether the demons go, I don't know, maybe they go to the next parish, but presumably the next parish is doing the same thing. So eventually, um, you know, the demons will have nowhere to go. Um, but, you know, this, this, uh, this idea that you banish demons just from the parish is uh, an indication of the, you know, the local nature of um, much of society in, 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 in pre-industrial times. Once they're out of the parish, who cares? Um, but, you know, you legitimise your rule by providing services that people welcome. You also um, have to do perhaps you know, slightly more coercive things and, you know, stop people doing things that, um, uh, that they shouldn't have done. I mentioned heresy earlier. Um, the rulers have various courts to punish various supernatural or spiritual crimes. Um, the Inquisition, which exists in many places in late medieval Europe and um, gets reinvigorated in Spain and Italy in the early modern period, it is a, a particular set of courts that exists to punish just one crime, heresy. Um, if it's not heresy, the Inquisition can't deal with it, but actually they take quite a wide range of things as being heresy. Um, their main aim is to reclaim heretics for the church, to, so re-education, if you like, and to get them to repent of their heresy and to return to an orthodox path. They do occasionally burn people at the stake if they, um, uh, uh, if they refuse to repent. Uh, so, you know, the Inquisition is a coercive institution. Um, the regular clergy, the ordinary sort of bishops and... Um, uh, ordinary regular network of churchmen separate from the Inquisition, they have their own church courts and they use canon law, of which there is a lot as you can see in this book. Um, and you know, they, they, the regular church courts deal with things like marriages, contracts. You might not think that contracts are re religious, but if you make a contract with an oath, then it's the church courts that deal with it. Um, and they, they're, they're kind of sort of morality police courts. So the regular church courts are important in, in ruling um, a supernatural world. And the, the completely secular criminal courts are also important in dealing with witchcraft because witchcraft is a kind of dual offence. It harms people in this world as well as um, uh, being wrong from a, a magical perspective. And so the, the secular criminal courts will deal with that. This is the, um, the, 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 the law code of the Holy Roman Empire, which has got um, provisions about witchcraft. So, you know, actually cracking down directly, you know, using um, the institutions of, of, of government to, um, to punish people who step out of line is part of uh, what you have to do. You also have to spread a message of what is legitimate um, and illegitimate. So, books like this, um, uh, Rebuke of Superstitions and Enchantments, very popular book, um, in, in Spain, published in 1530, and you know, went on being published, oh, I'm not sure, certainly well over a century, I think. Um, and it's got um, long descriptions of you know, wrong practices that need to, be, uh, um, need to be discouraged, need to be stamped out. Um, so, so kind of propaganda. And you also maybe want censorship, and this is the, the Papal Index, the famous index list of prohibited books. Um, this is after the Protestant Reformation. The Protestants don't have a list of prohibited books, but 
they certainly have got an idea that certain books are bad, and if you circulate bad books, you'll be punished by the, um, the, the, the secular uh, criminal courts. I'll say more about some of the bad books later. Um, I now want to talk first of all about the control of elite magic and then to say something about popular magic. Um, so elite magic, there are a few people in the Renaissance early modern period who actually use the word magic in a positive sense. As I said, usually magic is, um, is considered a bad thing, but there are a few people who use the word magic and actually say, well, I am doing magic. Uh, and a few sort of Renaissance in, in, intellectuals who, who do this, and one of the um, early leaders of this is Massimo Ficino. Uh, and um, he wrote about and practiced what he called natural magic. And the distinction he was drawing when he talked about natural magic uh, is that he was not contacting spirits, in particular demons, right? Um, so he is accepting that there is a legitimate line to be drawn. If you, if you invoke demons, that would be bad. But he is not doing that. He is using the special powers of the natural world, which are kind of hidden and encoded within the world itself. This is um, uh, Renaissance Neoplatonism, which I don't really want to get into. But um, numbers have special magical power. You know, we think of numbers as somehow um, uh, sort of everyday and mundane, but um, but most even intellectuals are, are not using uh, numbers in the 15th century, and you know numbers are often understood to to, um, to have quasi magical powers. Herbs sometimes are quasi magical. You know they may have symbolic uh, associations which may make them special. Magnets are thought to be special, and so on. Um, uh, this is sometimes controversial, and um, uh, one of Ficino's successes, Cornelius Agrippa, German uh, magician, um, becomes more controversial, and his critics say that he might be dealing with demons. Um, uh, but you know, whether a spirit is actually a demon, or whether this is just something, uh, a sort of spiritual property of an aspect of the natural world, um, is a, a line that the Neoplatonists blur a little bit. So, so there's, um, there's room for debate about this, and you know whether you stay orthodox or not is um, uh, something that gets debated. So it, the control of elite magic is something that is a sort of discourse. You know, how, how far can people go? How closely do we need to police this? Um, Couple of case studies. Um, the um, Charles VI of France uh, was um, seriously insane and psychotic, believed himself to be made of glass, um, killed, I think, several people in, in psychotic rages. Uh, and there were various, more or less, magical attempts to cure him. Um, um, some of them were um, perceived to succeed more than others, but the way, uh, and there was a lot of debate about you know, how Charles should be. Uh, cured and how far you can go, but the, the, the discourse about whether magical cures on Charles VI are working or not 
is mainly about whether they are effective or not, and about the political affiliation of the magician's concern, because there was a lot of political factionalism at the French court. And the question of, is that guy dealing with demons, tends not to be raised. So this may be a, a, an, an instance at the beginning of my period when people are less worried about dealing with demons. By the time you get to the 16th century, you've got guys like John Dee, um, famous English magician, you know, he, he didn't think that he was using magic. Just occasionally, you know, he does get into trouble at a time of political factionalism in England in 1555. He was perceived as making um, uh, predictions for the Princess Elizabeth, and uh, there were subversive people supporting her. He got arrested on suspicion of magic, quote-unquote. Charges then escalated to conjuring or witchcraft. Conjuring meant summoning spirits, probably demons. Um, however, yeah, he got let out, uh, and you know the charges were dropped, and he had a you know more or less successful career thereafter. So, um, you know, people are watching carefully to make sure that people like this don't cross a line. And um, these magicians fade away a bit during the 17th century. Um, uh, the Emperor Rudolf II may have been one of the last to patronise magicians on a large scale. And he certainly did patronise a lot of um, magical people, particularly alchemists who were trying to produce gold out of base metal. Um, but many other fields have got astrology, hermeticism, Kabbalah, divination, secret languages, the art of memory. Um, you know, all this stuff is more or less magical. Um, but. Uh, um, you know, Rudolf is still trying to draw lines, and he imprisoned or banished a few alchemists, but mainly for apparent fraud rather than dealing with demons. Uh, but the um, elite magic tends to become more countercultural, I think, in the 17th century, and the Rosicrucian manifestos of the early 17th century may have had something to do with that. These were sort of alchemical, but also um, about grand ideas of reform, which could well be considered subversive. They claimed that there was a Rosicrucian Brotherhood, which sounded um, like a sort of secret society. Probably there wasn't a Rosicrucian Brotherhood, but the idea of a Rosicrucian Brotherhood um, became thought of as subversive. A uh, couple of quick um, case studies that um, show how the borders are policed uh, in more detail, these are a couple of Italian magicians from the 16th century. Um, Gian Battista della Porta, first of all, um, um, you know, he certainly said that what he was doing was, was natural magic. And in the 1560s in Naples, he established what he called an academy, kind of research group or network. Hey, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Uh, um, scholars interested in the, what he called the secrets of nature. Um, the authorities closed it down. They suspected that there was something unorthodox about it, and he went, "Oh well, yeah, uh, okay, I'll I'll accept what you, you know." Um, and in 1583, his best-selling book on natural magic um, was banned, um, but he thought, "Well, you know, maybe I can um, turn this around. Maybe I can get some kind of good outcome out of this." And he revised it. He removed some of the more provocative passages from it, like the recipe for the witch's flying ointment. Um, and published a second edition, got a noble patron, and yeah, so he sort of manoeuvred around the boundaries of what was acceptable and orthodox, and stayed out of serious trouble. And you know, he seems to have wanted to stay out of serious trouble and to treat the authorities with respect, which is how authorities, of course, all should be treated, or so the authorities thought. 
much less orthodox than is this chap. Um, you know, that motto uh, about not being silent, yeah. Uh, um, he was a magician, but he wrote probably over a hundred books. Uh, yeah, anybody who wants him in a research institute. Um, uh, he, he was extremely um, productive. He had a lot of time to write, as we'll see. Um, um, but, um, yeah, his, um, the, the book of his that I've, I, the only one of his hundred books, not all of which survive, the only one that I've actually read is this one, The City of the Sun, which I do commend, actually, as a, uh, as a very good read. Anyone who's read Thomas More's Utopia, this is a utopian tract, and it's you know, very entertaining, it's got a very cool ending. Um, but um, it was written in prison, and um, it, it, there's a lot of astrology in it, uh, brief quotations, there will be a great new monarchy um, uh, after, after certain astrological uh, conjunctions, there will be a great new monarchy, reformation of laws and arts, new prophets, a general renewal. Um, this will be a great benefit to all the Christians, but first the world will be uprooted and cleansed, and then it will be replanted and rebuilt. If you're one of the existing rulers, you do not want to hear this. And you know, the reason Campanella had so much time over his career to write those books is because he spent most of his career in prison. Uh, he did occasionally get patronized by the old Pope or King. Um, you know, people were interested in this stuff, but he, he wasn't really good at towing the line. And um, it, you know, he made prophecies for, uh, for dissident groups and yeah. Uh, uh, the authorities who want to police the line between orthodoxy and unorthodoxy find people like Campanella really a bit troublesome. So, there <sighs> right, popular magic. A few minutes on that. Um, so, um, popular magic is mostly beneficial. You know, here's a magician selling winds to sailors. If you untie those knots, you get more wind. You know, this is fairly straightforward and uh, um, usually um, reasonably acceptable. Um, the common folk do perceive that there is bad magic, and um, bad magic is usually about harming your neighbours through magic. This is one of the familiar rituals, you know, a witch um, can steal a neighbour's milk using axe magic. Um, so if you look at the cow, actually the, the milk will come from the cow, um, uh, to the axe and then into the witch's um, pail. Um, and, you know, this is something that people perceive other people as doing. And they will only perceive one witch at a time. But, um, you know, villagers don't demand mass prosecutions of witches, and this is not the reason why 50,000 witches got executed in early modern Europe. Uh, the, the reason for that was that the authorities perceived that people who did that kind of thing would also be dealing with demons, making a pact with the devil, um, and would um, be conspiring with each other. So this is a collective worship of the devil. So if you get one witch like this, interrogate her, who else was there when you met the devil? Let's get other names. In, and coercively interrogate them under torture and you can get a chain reaction which ones. I don't want to say too much about this but this was a deeply controversial and upsetting phase and it's, uh, um, you know when you see hundreds or thousands of witches being executed you know you may see godly power being exercised but you also see you know terrific instability in the world why are there all 
why is the world overrun by, by riches and demonic power? So it is really, really worrying. And some people you know, will say, well, yeah, we need to step up our campaign, burn even more witches, etc. But some people might react in other ways. Um, so, um, exorcism is another thing that grows in um, popularity in early modern Europe. And it's a way of getting rid of demons. Yeah, you, you perhaps can see the demons in this picture. The demon, um, somebody who's possessed is an innocent victim of demons rather than a guilty witch, but um, they still have to have the demons banished from them. And um, this exorcist is using the um, power of the Virgin Mary, um, uh, and you can see the demons uh, flying away. Um, exorcism becomes controversial. It sort of establishes itself more in Catholic countries, and there is a, a sort of, as well as the official exorcists, there are unofficial um, exorcists who actually may cause trouble and, and exercise in unlicensed ways and subvert the authorities. Um, control of the situation, Protestants tend to sort of discourage the whole thing. Um, but this is all part of how to rule a magical world. How long have I got? Maybe just a few more minutes? Yeah, another yeah. ten minutes. Another ten minutes, that would be about right. Okay. Um, not all of this is simply agreed and um, cut and dried and uh, um, uh, something that all the authorities agree on or are clear about. And um, one of the things that often strikes me is that um, although I'm drawing a distinction between the, you know, the authorities and the elite and the intellectual perspective on this and the perspective of the common folk, you know, this is an essential distinction that you have to start with. But a lot of people are sort of in the middle. You know, you know, even the elite for most of our period have got roots in popular culture um, and uh, they um, take at least some aspects of popular culture seriously. I mean, they know that the peasants are ignorant and stupid and so on. That's part of what you are expected to understand. But they don't think that everything that peasants do is necessarily um, are, are wrong or of no interest. And they, you know, they think it's important. So. So, you know, some local judges may, in fact, have uh, a view of demons and demonology that's, that's closer to the view of the common folk than to the austere view of the elite, you know. Um, and um, the crucial distinction there is, you know, if it's about demons, even if it does good in the world, um, uh, the common folk will almost always say, well, look, you know, if she helped me, you know, that must be good. Uh, and they, they will almost always refuse um, to believe that um, you know, somebody who does good in the world and who doesn't do harm um, is likely um, to be a witch. Or, and uh, you know, they don't denounce people like that to the authorities, and the authorities only get people like that um, in, in, in other ways. But the authorities are more willing to, to use that austere distinction, even if it's good. If it uses demons, um, it must be bad. Part of the complexity in the negotiation of this is because, you know, even among the elite and the intellectuals, there exist undercurrents of what one might call alternative demonology. And 
Some of this comes from uh, Neoplatonism and people like Campanella who are seeing spirits and intelligences that are not necessarily demonic. Um, but there is also an idea that you can actually use actual demons, even though they're bad, in good ways. And um, this, this comes from the, um, the, the, the Catholic or medieval Christian tradition of exorcism, uh, which uh, relies on commanding demons to depart. If you can command demons to depart, then um, you've got that demon temporarily under your control. So, uh, right demon, before you depart, could you also fix this? Yeah. Uh, um, and so the idea that if you use the correct health and safety procedures, um, you can use demonic power. Demonic power might be evil and you know, might harm you if you let it get out of control. But you know, in the modern world, electricity can be quite harmful if you let it get under, out of control. But you know, so long as you insulate everything, electricity is quite useful. Um, so the alternative demonology thinks of demons a bit like that. So long as you follow the correct health and safety procedures, you can use the power of demons. Um, this, this is one of the, um, the so-called grimoires, the books about how to deal with demons and summon demons. Unusually, this one is printed. Uh, most of them get circulated in manuscript to avoid censorship. Uh, um, um, but, you know, this is what some, some good spirits look like, so take careful there. Uh, if you come across something like that, it could be a good spirit. This is what bad spirits look like. You know, the, the, um, this book is willing to tell you that you, know, you can have dealings with bad spirits. Uh, it's, you know, on the whole, it tries to sort of, it, I mean, it does distinguish those two uh, uh, images, but um, so, some of the um, discussions of, say, what is a lunar spirit doesn't necessarily go into whether it's good or bad. But anyway, some of these demonologies, I'm sorry, some of these grimoires do have um, a different view of how demons should be dealt with than the, the official orthodox austere one. And part of ruling successfully is conducting um, an efficient negotiation with this. How far are you going to tolerate any of this at all? Um, are you going to tolerate it so long as it doesn't cause too much trouble? Are you going to go out of your way to try and stamp it out? You know, some of these people may have deviant views even within your own clergy or within your own university. Are you going to be trying to, um, to, uh, to sort of weed them out of every single institution? This is a debate that gets had within all these institutions. So ruling successfully is negotiating um, the different ways in which demons can be understood. Towards disenchantment, this is before I, uh, my last section before I conclude, um, the, the sort of traditional or the, the orthodox way that has emerged for most of my period um, is, is the austere one that, um, you know, magic is bad, demons are bad, and, you know, this, this book in 1600 sums it up at inordinate length, uh, and, it, you know, it makes things very, very clear. Um, but during the 17th century, it gets a bit less clear. This is one of the early examples of um, something that, that makes it less clear. And it, it doesn't challenge orthodox demonology head on. 
but it does begin to suggest that magic as such um, might not be effective. And um, part of this is the um, scientific revolution, which gradually reduces the way in which demons can be used in the discussion of the natural physical world and looks for physical causation in ways that don't really allow demons to, to get a look in. The, this is the so-called mechanical philosophy, which I haven't really got time um, uh, to, to explain. Um, but it doesn't challenge demons head on, it just, it, it just drops them off the agenda. Uh, the disenchantment debate is a huge debate, uh, and uh, the, the small contribution to it, or the small bit of it that I want to engage with, is members of the elite ceasing to believe that spiritual entities affect the material and human world in unpredictable ways. So, you know, any time we might see demons coming and doing unpredictable stuff, and that it's incumbent on us to be on our guard and to try and prevent that happening or punish it when it does. So this isn't about secularization in the sense of people becoming less religious, they go on being religious, and it isn't, or it isn't directly about religious pluralism and toleration, though I think that may play something of a role, and it's also not about the beliefs of the common folk, because I don't think they changed um, anything like as much. But, oh, and the other thing that the disenchantment debate discusses is the idea that the, the natural world is somehow wonderful and um, in, in a sort of mystical sense of wonder. Uh, yeah, I'm happy with all of that. Uh, so all the critics of disenchantment have um, made a lot of valid points, but I do think that people stop thinking that actual demons will come in and affect the physical world, and that that is likely to happen, and uh, something that, uh, that active steps need to be taken to deal with. So, um, let me wind, wind up. Um, magic is contested, even whether you call it magic or not. You know, there, there are discourses about these kinds of things and about power. Um, the people with power are the people who can bring home hostile definitions against people. You know, you can call somebody a witch, they don't call themselves a witch. But you've got the power, your courts can do it, and they, you can punish them. You can call someone a heretic. Um, they don't think that they're a heretic, um, but you can bring that home to them. You can call someone an idolater and bring that home to them, even though they don't think they are. So, uh, relational discourse, but your discourse is successful, um, that the person does get labelled with that hostile label. Um, but um, the, the, um, the continuing definitions, the common folk throughout the period are interested in um, whether it's good or bad in the everyday world, whether it's beneficial or harmful, and they think of witchcraft as, as, as harmful. Um, the authorities may also think that too, and um, thinking about whether it's beneficial to their authority or harmful for their authority is a particular strand of their discernment of spirits, if you like. Just remember the difference between St. Teresa of Avila and Martin Lembauer. Um, you know, that, that is really about you know, whether a visionary is useful to the authorities. But there is the third, um, more austere uh, question. Does it come from God or the devil? If it comes from the devil, even if it does apparent good or does no harm in the everyday world, it's still bad. And that, I think, fades away. 
um, after maybe about 1650. If, if, if you want me to give you a symbolic date where it starts to fade away, um, I would say 1648 is the symbolic date. That's the end of the Thirty Years' War. Thirty Years' War began in 1618, by the way, and ended in 1648. Titanic religious war. Worst war that Europe experienced before 1914. You know, worse than the Napoleonic Wars back then, those were. Um, huge dislocation, huge amount of death, populations of a number of places actually halved through maybe not direct military action, but you know, refugees, starvation, social dislocation. And towards the end of that, people began to say, look, we have got to not do this anymore. And the, the, the Thirty Years' War was brought to, the end, to an end by the Peace of Westphalia, which more or less said, we are not going to have religious wars anymore. They go on having wars, but they are not religious. And they, they do put in place sort of ideologies that, and mechanisms that, that head off religious war. And once they stop doing that, then by the grace of God, they go on saying it, it's still on the British coinage. Um, they go on saying it, but it, it's got less traction, and it's less contentious, and it doesn't matter so much. You don't have to prove so much that you're godly. Um, members of the elite distance themselves from popular culture, the scientific revolution cut away the traditional supports of, uh, of demonology. Witch hunting just slips off the agenda, and if the common folk are prosecuted for superstition, that's mainly because it's uh, sort of offensive against public decency and obviously harm harmless, but you know, false, ignorant, perhaps fraudulent. It's about public decency and not about dealing with demons. And so dealing with demons um, fades away, and the all-consuming contest between legitimate and illegitimate supernatural power is largely at an end by, say, 1750. Common folk could probably relax a bit, and even the rulers might find Europe a little bit easier to rule.